This is Soccer Pilgrim, the podcast dedicated to soccer and travel, where each stadium is shrine and its fans delay people. For the traveler, it is another culture to explore. Welcome to the Soccer Pilgrim podcast with Jason Kim. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Soccer Pilgrim. I'm your host, Jason Kim. And last episode, I ended the episode talking about how players influence the fans, but not just the fans, how they influence how the fans feel, but also inspire how soccer players play the game or approach the game. You know, like we've all seen that, like the guys who like to play like Cristiano Ronaldo, the guys who like to play like Messi, we all seen it. And they've influenced us because, I don't know, it could be a, it could be a lot of different reasons like any other sport. But today I wanted to talk about specifically on, I guess, the humanity, some of the things that it is discussed, but not enough. Uh, I, I always found this conversation quite interesting myself. A lot of my friends, oh, specifically Kirabel, the guy who's helping me with this podcast, he seems to find the whole injury behind the scenes things on professional soccer interesting. So what do they do behind the scenes? How do players cope with injuries? How do they think about it? Or how do they think about the game? Those are things that I hope I can have interviews with professional players down the line. That would be nice and get to talk to them, see what it's like from their perspective. But for now, I'll give you my opinion of what I see it from as an external person who's starting a new podcast. So the theme of this episode is the humanity of the players. I'm going to first talk about the injuries. Some of the players who I felt could have had a bigger career if it weren't for injuries but specifically talk about how players really do influence society and culture as a whole. You know, I'm going to talk about my experience in going to Kenya and talking about Park Ji-sung as a way to, as an icebreaker with, with local Kenyans. You know, I, I just, when I think about it today, it's kind of it's funny when I think about it today. And then I'll end the episode on, on Maradona. And the reason why I want to talk about Maradona is because I recently watched, well, recently, as in like a few months ago, I watched this documentary on him called Diego Maradona. It's on HBO. It came out last year. And I got to say, it's, it really totally reshaped the way I view soccer players now, especially Maradona. And I'll get to him. I'll get to him at the end of the episode. But the one thing I do want to say about that, about that specific documentary about Maradona is it's a perfect example of the humanity of a soccer player, but they're, they're, as a person, what they're like on the pitch and off the pitch. And this this perfectly demonstrates the kind of guy he was on the pitch and off the pitch because you, you get two different, two completely different personalities. It's worth watch. So let's let's talk about injuries. I've been injured a lot of times myself playing soccer. I mean, nothing crazy. I didn't like... The worst injury I had was I pulled my MCL. I went on a 50-50 challenge with another guy. 50-50 is if you and the other guy are both going for the ball and you both sort of have this equal... The equal opportunity of winning the ball. That's what it's called, 50-50. So I'm going for it, and I'm trying to win the ball off this guy. And this ball is like a dead ball. So it's just sort of, it's just on the grass. It's there. No one's on it. So me and a guy are running for it. And the guy who's going for it, he's a defender, and I'm a winger. And he's just, he's much bigger than I am. Uh, his legs, I just remember seeing his legs, and I was like, those are big legs. <laughs> and we're both going for it, and both of us made contact with the ball at the same time. But the problem was... I wanted to dig my foot under the ball to scoop it and then so I could like dribble past him, but he was just way quicker. So I, I guess out of pure instinct, I decided you got to touch the ball first. So we both hit the ball at the same time, but all that pressure went up to my to my knee, my MCL. I remember hearing, not a crack, but I just remember hearing something and I'm on the ground and I'm screaming and I'm like, that it, it fucking hurt. It was not pleasant. And I remember the ref 
the ref comes running and he was like, yo, you okay? I'm like, it's, it's not good. I was like, this is not good. Whatever this is, is not good. And, you know, I get off the field, they bring ice, they're talking to me. And then one of the refs told me, one of the administrators of the league, he told me, he was like, when you started screaming, I was worried because you don't seem the kind of guy that you, you don't scream at all. I'm, I'm a quiet person when I play sometimes. And, and yeah, so that sucked. I pulled my MCL and I was out for, I couldn't play soccer for eight weeks. So two to three months I couldn't play. But even when I came back playing, my knee was like weak and my legs were weak. I just had to go back, I had to go back to the gym and do all that stuff. But that was on my own. And then I remember the entire time I was just sitting there. I was like, these these pro soccer players are beating their bodies up every week. And I just played like a, like a seven aside, 20 minute half games in a recreational league. And these pro players, like if you see them, when you, especially when you see it live, they're going at each other. Like there's there's no fear. When you play in certain levels, you can tell that some people are a little more hesitant into the challenge because, you know, no one wants to get hurt. Even at higher competitive levels, like there's some, you know, not everyone's going all in all the time. Maybe if it was a playoff final, it would be a different story. But we're talking about professional league soccer that there isn't a there there's no cup at stake at the moment. And they're still going all in. You know, when I went to watch that West Ham game in London, I was like, yo, these these tackles are actually way harder in person. When you see it live in you know in person, you're like, oh, it's pretty hard tackles. Which brings me to injured players. How much does injury or the fear of injury hamper a player's growth? Obviously, you can't have a fear of injury because then you won't be able to play. So you gotta you know, just get on with it. Accept the fact that you will get injured or you can get injured. Then, then I started going through the rolodex of players of who had such promising careers that they could have legitimately challenged Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi in that conversation of the best player, of the GOAT player, or whatever. But the players I'm thinking about specifically are Bale, Gareth Bale, James Rodriguez, Kaká, and Alexander Pato. Let's start with Pato. Pato is this Brazilian player. He played in AC Milan. I remember when he was 18, everyone was like, oh, this is going to be the next big guy, the big player coming out of Brazil. Play already playing for the top club in Europe, AC Milan. AC Milan used to, I mean, still is a top club. That famous goal he scored against Barcelona in like the first minute in the Champions League, you know, something ridiculous. He was such a good player. If you look him up on YouTube, you're like, wow, he's really good. But injuries hampered him too early in his career. Like before he even turned 23, I didn't look this up, but I just, I'm just going based on memory. Like before he turned 23, or even before he turned 21, he just had all these injuries. I think it was always like an ankle injury or some ligament injury, and it was always reoccurring. And then, you know, I guess yada, 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 he ends up, uh, he ends up playing in China. And to think that you had this player with such tremendous talent, everyone, I remember it as it was yesterday, everyone was saying, this is the guy. This is the player that I won't bought on manager mode. This is the player that I won't played on a football manager. Like, this was, you know, the safe bet, like the young best thing, kind of like Neymar when he was still in Brazil. But everyone was pointing to uh, some of my AC Milan friends at the time were telling me that it was injuries that just ha- really hampered his career, that he could have been much bigger or could have even still been playing in Europe. Which brings me to Gareth Bale. I love Gareth Bale. He is my favorite British player. My, well, my, my favorite Welsh player. He's like the only great Welsh player at the moment, along with Aaron Ramsey and like a few others. But I remember him in Tottenham before he went back. That that run he did where he destroyed Maicon and um, Javier Zanetti in the Champions League against Inter Milan. I watched that at a bar with some friends. And I remember thinking, who is this guy? And I remember he was wearing the number three jersey. That's what I remembered. 
So I was like, is he a fullback? Like, what's happening? He's playing on the wing, but he's wearing number three. Confusing. And then the next season, he gets the 11. And then he, next thing you know, he just becomes this overnight sensation that kept on growing and dominating the Premier League and just really a Madrid player. He was destined to play for Madrid. There was so much hype and he had so much power. And he was, he's such a great player. And Madrid needed a left-footed direct strong player to sort of be the heir of Ronaldo because everyone's sort of accepting the fact that Ronaldo was gonna was reaching his twilight years which at the time is such a ridiculous thing to think about but anyway but as anyone knows about Bale he's just been injured every season at Madrid he comes in at 2014 or 2015 now he's on loan to Tottenham and every season he's been injured the first season of Madrid he was injured but it was only for like a month or two but you know he was amazing his first season in Madrid but then he kept getting, I think, the same reoccurring ligament injuries. Some, like, I've noticed there's always some, like, thigh injury or some knee injury. And it keeps coming back. And the reason why I bring this up, because he recently sent an interview that he could have been, if it weren't for injuries, he could have been on, in that discussion along with Ronaldo and Messi. And I got to be honest, I, some people say no, but when you remember how he was back then, and if he had been consistent with that form when he played for Tottenham, you know, scoring 20, 30 goals a season and being played in the right position based on the formation. But the problem with Bale is that he's on the same team with Ronaldo. He will never be the star with Ronaldo. And this is sort of the main problem with Real Madrid is they like to buy superstars, but they don't necessarily think about team cohesion at times. That's why in 2009, when they bought like Xabi Alonso, Arbeloa, Benzema, uh, Ronaldo, Kaká, and... Raul Albiol, they bought like six players, six highly rated players, and they won nothing the first season. And then Manuel Pellegrini, the coach at the time, gets fired, although they broke the points record of over 100 points. So where am I going with this? Based on what Bale said, I don't disagree with him, but we'll never know. However, when you see the quality of a player that he is, you could definitely see that he could have been in that discussion. But a classic counter-argument would be, well, we do have Neymar, and Neymar has been in that discussion. And the problem with Neymar is himself, really. It seems like it's himself, but also he's been injured quite a lot as well. So it really seems to come down to how talented are you and how infrequently injured do you get? Because when you look at Messi and Ronaldo, the number of times those two have been injured compared to Bale, it's like not even half. They've like... They're hardly injured, those two, when you really think about it. I mean, maybe as of recent, they are because they're getting older. But in their prime or throughout their career, they're, they, ha- they haven't really been that injured. All this to say, I love Bale. I've seen him play live. Very good. The, guy, the way he... The way he... Uh, the, his technique on the ball is incredible. It's very impressive to see in person. I remember him giving a pass across with the outside of his left foot. His left foot being as strong as... Just a simple dink. And he just crossed it across the pitch landing in front of Isco. Yeah, I think it was Isco. Riding, landing right in front of Isco. And I was just like, that's it? That was so easy for you. Holy crap, that was incredible. It was, anyway, it's impressive. Okay, so James Rodriguez. I really like him. He's a, he's a Colombian babe. Everyone loves him. He's like, he's, you know, beautiful. They'll call him James. His name is James. And, and same with him. Similar with Bale. I think he even said something similar at some interviews. Like, in Madrid, he had been injured for a while. And then... He's at Everton now, and he's still injured. Even when he played at Colombia, that game, that World Cup game against England, where they went to penalties, and England finally beat their penalty curse against Colombia, Hamas was on the bench because he was injured. But I think Hamas is a bit of a different discussion because he's 
He said it many times in interview that no one plays in number 10 position anymore. For those who don't know soccer, number 10 is the position they play right, right behind the striker. The striker being the most top forward. And the number 10 position or the attacking midfielder position or the playmaker position, what have you, let's call it the number 10, sits right behind the striker. And their job is to support them, support the attack, make the key passes. If they have a chance to take a shot, they'll take the shot. The entire attacking play goes through the number 10. The number 10 is sort of like this this a quarterback, if you will, if you think about American football. like You expect them to be the playmaker, but also be able to score goals. And James is that guy. He can give you a great pass, great vision, great technique. He can shoot it from anywhere. That volley against Brazil, I think, or no, against Uruguay in the 2014 World Cup is everything you must know about this guy. He's great. But he's been injured, and he's been happy with a lot of injuries. But a lot of people would say no one plays a number 10 position anymore, meaning... In soccer, you have like a million different formations. And the number 10 position doesn't apply to every formation. You can have 4-3-3, which means four defenders, three midfielders, three forwards. Or you can have uh, a 4-2-3-1, which is like four defenders, two defensive midfielders, three attacking midfielders, and one striker. And in that formation, the 4-2-3-1, the number 10 works quite well. But not everyone plays that formation that I just said because there's flaws to it. If you overrun the wings, you could you could essentially crack this formation if you can. I mean, uh, this is getting too much of the details, but I mean, there's there's when you look at soccer formations, how they work and what kind of players you have, it really becomes some very elaborate game of chess, which I find fascinating. In the recent trends, this game of chess, if you will, no longer employs a number ten. So that's probably what. That definitely is what hampered James becoming, you know, that next big name along with Messi and Ronaldo. Then lastly, Kaká. Uh, Kaká, i big fan of Kaká. Now with Kaká, I mentioned him in previous episodes. He's the best name, best name in the business. You will never forget it. His name is shit. <laughs> but no one ever makes that joke because that does not reflect the quality of player that he is. He is beyond shit. Like, he's just amazing. He was the last... Before Luka Modric, it was just Ronaldo and Messi winning the Ballon d'Or every year. Ballon d'Or being the best player in the, in the world, a ceremony. It's like the Oscars of soccer, which is also as politicized as the real Oscars. And before it was that dichotomy of Messi and Ronaldo, Kaká was the Ballon d'Or winner in 2008. And people at that time thought that the conversation was going to be Kaká and Ronaldo, not Messi. Messi was still coming up and highly rated, but I remember clearly Kaká was reaching his prime, if not already in his prime. Ronaldo was just this beast that everyone was like, okay, he's also the next big thing. But really the conversation at the time was between Ronaldo and Kaká and Messi in third. But quickly Messi just overtook. But that's how good Kaká was. Everyone was talking about him, just like Pato. Like He came through AC Milan, young guy, good-looking, but also just an amazing player, amazing speed, great technique, great quality. But when he got to Madrid, he just he was always injured. And I, that bums me out. When he first came to Madrid, I bought a Kaká jersey, and I was like, yeah, this is going to be a great time to be a Madrid fan and you know, start watching Madrid. But he'd been injured a lot in Real Madrid. And part of me feels like... And it's always kind of like the same... Injury had to do with the knee or thigh or something like that and ligaments. And you knew he was good because every time he did play for Madrid, he wasn't the worst player. He was really like sharp, making plays, like being in the right right spots. But also every goal he scored for Madrid, not ugly. All really great goals. Which again says a lot about the kind of player he was. But if he hadn't been injured, 
he would be in a conversation with Ronaldo and Messi, but it, it wouldn't be for long. It'd be for like a season or two. The same way how the Ronaldo and Messi conversation had Iniesta and Xavi being included in that conversation. But it was only for like a season or two. And I think Kaká, if he hadn't been injured, it would have been the same deal. Because there's too much too much marketing and too much momentum, both as both in terms of success and how good they are as players, but also the marketing aspect. The momentum was with Messi and Ronaldo. And also because they were like a few years younger than Kaká as well. That's what I think. So I talk about injured players. So how does this tie into the feeling, I guess, or feel? how do these injured players make us feel? Some of the players I mentioned uh, make us feel a certain way. They definitely entertain us online, among the fans, if you go on YouTube or whatever, or The Zone. But when I see injuries, you know, and people's reaction towards injuries, in terms of the fans' reaction to injuries, is one of either sympathy or of empathy, as anything would be, right? Sympathy would be, oh, that sucks for them. I hope they recover soon, get well, and we need you back on the field because we need to win. It's almost like a sink employee. You know, it's like, okay, you got the fever. Go home. We'll see you in like a week. Take a week off. Come back uh, once your fever is gone. I feel like that feel, <laughs> that example is completely different today in today's climate. But anyway. But I think for soccer players, it's kind of the one thing that has a direct connection with the pro players is injuries. That's the way I see it. I mean, it's kind of funny. Obviously, not not everyone sees it the same way. But in today's social media, if let's say when I pulled my MCL and I see another player who has a similar injury and, and let's say they go down on Instagram and they're posting the recovery, the recovery workouts, what they're doing, as someone with a similar injury, that's great. That is a good resource. I'll say, okay, if that's how you're doing it, okay, I'll do the same. Doesn't necessarily mean it's the same kind of injury, but it reminds me that, you know, at the end of the day, these guys, their bodies, if you will, are very high performance, something that, you know, not for nothing that only very few become pro athletes because they're not just their physical strengths and their physical talents, but the mental talent is just all culminated together. So we tend to see them as very special people, but when in fact they're just human beings who just turn out to be really, really good at soccer. Like that's really the truth of it. So when I see them injured, I'm like, oh, you know, obviously we're, we're all human, but if there's one good example of how injuries affect fans, is probably the 2016 Euro finals between France and England, uh, France and uh, Portugal. When Cristiano Ronaldo was subbed off, I think the 25th, 26th minute, he got like this hard tackle and it kind of messed his, messed his uh, knee up. The entire stadium, both French and Portuguese fans, were applauding him off. If it had been any other player, well, whatever, they're like, okay, get off. <laughs> because it was Ronaldo, I, the fans were, were realizing that their final is kind of spoiled in in slightly i mean it's still a euro final you still you know paid a lot of money and it's still a unique experience but without having ronaldo there it definitely obviously a lot of fans are bummed out but also the fact that fans got up it still applauded him it's not only show it's not only a sign of respect but also it's kind of too bad you didn't get to see ronaldo do his best at the biggest stage one of the biggest stages of his career and you can only feel for the guy because you know that he worked hard at it. Say what you want about him, his personality, him being an asshole. You're probably right. Who knows? I don't know. I'll never meet the guy. But but he's still a human being that's worked incredibly hard to make it to that final with Portugal, especially a Portuguese team that had zero expectations that, that you know, they, they had no business being there. Let's be honest. They've unimpressively won their way through. <laughs> oh, man. My, I could hear the anger coming at me from some of my friends. But they weren't the most convincing team. 
Belgium was convincing, France was convincing, but they didn't show up and Portugal did show up when it mattered. At the end of the day, it comes down to who showed up. And the person who won it for Portugal wasn't even Ronaldo. It was a guy who scored one goal in in the last year. And he's a forward. That's his position. And he scored only one goal in the last year or nine goals in the last year. I don't know, something, some incredibly low number. And he clutched it. <laughs> That's all that matters. Uh, good for him. Shout out to Eder. Good for you, man. <laughs> but, you know, it, whatever the players do on the field, it will make us it will make us feel a certain way, even off the pitch. I think a good example of, in particular, mistakes that are done on the pitch, when a player makes a mistake on the field, for myself as like an amateur player, it reminds me that mistakes happen all the time, even at the professional level. You know, some people like to look at the professional game and see someone make a mistake and say, you're not supposed to make those kind of mistakes. Depending what kind of player he is and what kind of uh, money that player is being spent, I understand. Especially what kind of club you play for. There are standards that must be met and maintained. But sometimes those expectations of players could be unrealistic and turn into violence. And what I'm thinking about specifically is uh, Andres Escobar, a Colombian player. And... I remember hearing the story on Discovery Channel of all places uh, when I was younger and being shocked that this is how much soccer meant to people in other parts of the world. So let's set the stage. It's 1994, World Cup USA. It's the first time that the World Cup has ever come to the United States and there's a lot of hype and it's, I think, commercially a success. Colombia is in the same group as as United States. And America or United States really need to beat Colombia to move on to the next round, the round of 16. And I looked it up, and apparently in their group, the top three teams, three teams out of four will make it to the next round, which really sucks for the fourth place team because that they don't that doesn't really they don't have the same system today anymore. Anyway, long story short, the game was 10-0-0, and Colombia concedes a goal, but it was an own goal. One of the American players, I think, went for a cross, a low cross, and a Colombian player tried to this in this case Escobar tried to clear it out and instead of clearing it out he end, he ends up scoring it at his own goal which obviously resulted in 1-0 lead for the United States at the end of the game Colombia loses 2-1 two, to United States so the United States wins the game 2-1 because of this loss Colombia will, was unable to make it to the next round the round of 16 while the United States makes it to the round of 16 so that being said Colombia's knocked out of the World Cup now these games I I these games, usually the World Cup happens in the month of June. So this incident must have happened early on the season, let's say the early months of June. And unfortunately, a month later, on July 1st, 1994, Andres Escobar was found killed, uh, murdered, outside of a bar in Medellin, or Medellin, if you're from Colombia. And it was official that it was revenge killing, that the it was reported that when he was being shot, the shooters were saying, goal, goal. It was reported, and which is really fucked. And but the entire incident, to think that you know you scored your own goal, you knocked your own country out, or you've contributed to your country's loss or knocking out of the World Cup. You know your entire life and career is coming to this moment that your your greatest achievement, your greatest pride, and you make one mistake, and your country or someone in that in your country betrays you by killing you because they feel upset that you've let them down. Some people would say to go to the extent to murder a man over one mistake, that, that's not feeling. That's just, you know, cold-blooded. That's, that's, that's messed up. Sometimes moments of passion makes people do the craziest things. And it's, that story saddens me. And it's, it's, 
it's very unfortunate but you know that's the reality that that happened and th- it does happen perhaps maybe not perhaps but it has most likely happened where people have been physically hurt as a result of the making the mistakes they had they've made on the pitch but that being said when we talk about mistakes when professional players make mistakes i feel the worst for goalkeepers because man you are alone if you're a defender, you could blame your other defenders. You could blame your midfielders for not contributing on defense. But as a goalkeeper, it's it's you could scream at your defenders, but if you don't stop that shot or if you don't see that shot coming, or it's just that's on you in in many ways. And the mental strengths of goalkeepers are perhaps the strongest in the soccer team. They must be because you're a position on your own. You have the most unique position, and no one could really relate to you. Even soccer players, I think, it was an all-in or nothing like in the uh, the Tottenham series I think it was there when they said that goalkeepers are just a breed of their own they're special and even other players are saying yeah goalkeepers they're kind of they kind of hang out and do their own thing I guess in a way it's sort of like I guess they're like specialists you know and and that's just an example of negative feeling it's just a mistake you know and it's it's heartbreaking so going from a sad story to a random story <laughs> from Colombia to Kenya uh, or even to Chad I went to Kenya and Chad two two separate summers, and I played soccer in both those countries. And the last story, I shared my story of playing soccer in Kenya, and um, my experience of playing soccer in Chad. Uh, that's a diff- I'm gonna I'm gonna do that for another episode because you know I've done a lot of soccer when I was there. But the one thing I love about just in Kenya and Chad, those are only two countries within Africa, and I can already tell that this is a soccer continent right off the bat. Like I mean, this is just obviously soccer content every barber shop that you'll drive past or see there's always going to be at least a soccer a picture of a soccer player somewhere and every boy's room there's a picture of a soccer player up there as well if not 50 cent uh, i've seen a lot of 50 cent posters for some reason <laughs> and i've seen a lot of manchester united fans arsenal fans liverpool fans uh, chelsea you know those are the big clubs that were popular when i went and I, you know, when I was in Kenya, they've never seen Asian people before. So they'll be making comments towards you as an Asian person. Oh, Ching Chong, uh, Chinese. I was, I was going to say Shinwa, but that, that wasn't Chad. They'll say these comments and, oh, they'll call you Jackie Chan or Jet Li, which makes you a celebrity for today, which is nice. <laughs> if not, the nicest thing they could ever call you is Muzungu, which is a white person, which, you know, it's like for them, it's also become a universal uh, word for a foreigner. But this would happen. And obviously I would be forced into a conversation be like, yo, don't call me that or whatever. Or, but sometimes it would always happen where the person asking, okay, so if you're not Chinese, where are you from? And it gets more complicated. I'm like, well, I'm Canadian, but then my parents are Korean. And then and, and, and they're like, okay, so you're Korean. Okay, you're Korean. Uh, fuck the Canadian part, you're Korean. <laughs> and, and the way we connected was over Park Ji Sung. And this is how I know this is a soccer literate country, <laughs> soccer literate country that they knew Park Ji Sung very well. They're like, oh yeah, three lung park. I'm like, how do you, how do you know that? And they would say, oh yeah, this guy runs forever. He, you know, they would, they would say about Park Ji Sung, oh, we like him. He's a good player, big game player, always play against the big clubs. And they would say, okay, so you're Korean. I'm like, yeah, so you're the same people as him. I'm like, yeah, we're both Korean. It's like, oh, so you Koreans are good at soccer, huh? I'm like, yeah, I guess so. We're, we're not half bad. I mean, if it's StarCraft, different story, but yeah, we're not half bad. And that's how we connected. And we just bonded. That was the icebreaker. Park Ji Sung was my icebreaker to have conversations with them. And then we started talking about soccer and then we started talking about life and so on and so forth. A lot, oftentimes, it's just small conversation in passing. Sometimes it becomes greater conversations with people who I get to sit down with and talk to. But it was the first time I was like 18 years old or 19 and I was like, oh shit, like soccer players transcend cultures for real. But it, it made my experience in Kenya that much more enriching that 
I'm with people who love soccer, who love to talk about it, who love to play it, who love to watch it. Even if they know how to play soccer, they'll sit down and watch other people play. And those are the things that I love doing. Obviously, I don't mean to generalize all Kenyans. For them, from my experience with a lot of Kenyans, at least the ones that I've met in person, it was that was it. You know, they they loved soccer so much. But that being said, here's a Korean guy, Park Ji Sung, who, because he turns out to, you know, because he plays for Manchester United, one of the biggest soccer clubs in the world, the New York Yankees of the soccer world, he is known everywhere by extension. It's like you join Manchester United and you get access to this wide network of marketing throughout the world. And instantly, as soon as you sign that paper to join Manchester United, the entire world knows your name already. It's kind of a crazy thing when you think about that. That's why I think Maradona is such an impressive personality and person and I'm just intrigued by him as like I'm gonna rewatch that documentary tonight because it's it's fascinating I'm gonna talk about Maradona but I'll talk about it I'll talk about it based on the documentary and also based on my personal experience but well personal experience as in like you know what I've heard from him or what I know of him which is like anyone else really but I think Maradona in terms of the soccer world he's the second superstar the first one being Pele Pele transcended in became the living representation of what soccer is and establish that Brazil is a soccer nation. And the documentary really, the documentary on Diego, Diego Maradona focuses his time in Napoli when he used to play in Naples, at the time being the second poorest city in Europe or the poorest city in Europe. Like when you're watching a documentary how Na- Naples look like, you're like, oh my goodness, it's, it's awful. <laughs> it doesn't look appealing at all. But that was a point. It was, he went from Barcelona to, to Napoli and no one thought that would be a thing. And the entire career sort of revolves, or the bulk of the document revolves his time in Napoli and sort of the the trouble he gets into with organized crime, the, uh, with the well, I guess with the organized crime in Naples, the mafia there. And also talks about his cocaine habit and, also, you know, just sort of coming off the rails. And to me, it seemed like that had everything to do with his superstardom, that it was, he was such a celebrity overnight that he had to deal with it on the pitch by playing soccer and expressing himself, but also off the pitch by, you know, partying, drugs, alcohol, all the all the fun stuff, if you will. And becoming friends with some of these high profile gang members. You know, it gets messy. It's very but it all comes from this guy growing up incredibly poor. And also I think he was a group of people that was discriminated in Argentina. But Maradona's fame not only had to do with him being such a great player, but uh, as a personality. I think what's so great is documentary. It shows that there's two types of per- person to him. There's the celebrity, which everyone refers to him as Maradona, and then there's the human aspect, the real him, the more vulnerable him, which is Diego. In the documentary, all of his friends and families, even ex-players, are saying, when you get to talk to him on the side, he's generally the nicest person, caring, loving, warm, you know, etc. I guess all the great values we'd associate with South Americans. And and then the negative side, you have this, you know, very confident, sometimes arrogant, loudmouth, loves to talk trash, and just a controversial player, like, you know, gets into fights, you know, all these things. And But people like that controversy of him because it's fun. And it's like, oh, wow, like this guy has an edge to him. But also when you just watch him play, you're just like, shit, you're really good. <laughs> But unlike Park Ji Sung, where he joins Manchester United and everything's set for him, Maradona, his fame came from himself. He was like self-made in terms of his fame. He joined Boca Juniors, which is the biggest club in South, one of the biggest clubs in South America. Goes to Barcelona, one of the biggest clubs in in Europe, and joins 
Napoli, not the biggest club at the time, not the biggest club in Italy, not the biggest club in Europe. And yet, because of him, they won two league titles. And Na- Naples, the club Napoli, is still considered a very good club to join today. And that had, that had almost everything to do with Maradona going to the club. He brought it up to another level. He brought them, he showed them what success is. Gave them silver, gave them, gave a city hope. I, a lot of me wishes I was in Na- Napoli when Maradona died, just to experience what a complete morning looks like throughout a city and he's made a city feel such a certain way they've renamed the stadium after his name there's probably millions there's probably thousands of if not millions of boys named Diego because of him or if not named Maradona because of him I'm not even talking about soccer anymore I'm just talking about what he did for people as like let, let me I'm gonna go back to him going to Naples Naples being the poorest city in Europe and you have here the biggest soccer star in the world that my mother in Korea in the 80s knew who he was, very much so. Like, because she would tell me he's all over the newspaper, all over the news, you know, all over the gossip blogs and so on. Gossip blogs, they didn't have blogs back then, but you know what I mean. And you have the celebrity who goes to the poor city and brings them success, wins them titles, makes their team, gives their team, their club, Napoli, some legitimacy. And not only does it give the club legitimacy, but it gives the city some legitimacy. That success can't happen in the poorest places. Granted, a lot of people say, well, you know, the mafia paid him to come play in Napoli. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put that aside for now. <laughs> uh, which, again, I suggest you all go watch the documentary, Diego Maradona. If you have Crave TV, it's there. And again, like, he makes people... You know, going to a poor city and bring them fame and make them feel a way they never felt before, you will revere whoever will be able to do that. That's why politicians are revered. The politicians who've done the best for the country in the worst times are the ones that, that get the statues. They're the ones that are put on the on the dollar bill. They're, they're everywhere. And Maradona genuinely is the first athlete, uh, besides Michael Jordan, but like Maradona is perhaps the first athlete that I noticed that he completely transcended sports. We, we know other soccer players who've done so, David Beckham being the best example, but Beckham was a nice boy, you know what I mean? Like, that's his, that's his whole persona. Yeah, he has all these tattoos, and he looks really cool and has that nice Cockney accent, but, like, that, that London accent, but who, you know, like, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, that's like, okay, cool. He's, like, he's a great player, but in terms of personality, I'm like, all right, you know, cool. But Maradona, I'm like, I, I want to party with you, but I'm also really concerned if I go party with you. I'm not a big party guy, but, like, I have to see. I have to see this. You know, that's like, especially watching documentary. You got to see how this guy parties, and and that's what made him so attractive. Is just that personality. In the same way, that's why he's my favorite soccer celebrity. Not Pele, not Messi, not Ronaldo, not not Beckham, but Maradona, because he's just a a unique person. Ronaldo's personality is just like, oh, I work hard. <laughs> that's that's kind of the only vibe I get from him. It's like, yeah, he's an amazing player, but it's like, yeah, I, knew, I work hard those are good lessons okay that's one Messi is just pure talent and it's just a fun to watch that's another thing but they're not as fun off the pitch as Maradona that's what I'm trying to say but I say this as someone who's being entertained but it comes at a cost of someone who's died but that what made Maradona amazing off the pitch was that he wasn't doing these things just to be entertaining yes there's a level of showmanship a part of you feels like this is genuinely how you are when you're not with your family you know what I mean? Like when you're outside of your house, this is just how you are. This is your baseline personality. This is just your baseline personality now. It's like I remember listening to the Joe Rogan podcast. And he's talking about Andrew Dice Clay, this comedian. Uh, Andrew Dice Clay is not his real name. 
He's like some Jewish guy from Brooklyn. But because he kept doing this character on stage, he just became that guy off stage as well because that's kind of what people want to see and that's kind of what people like. So he just stayed like that, I guess. And perhaps he's his most vulnerable self, his most normal self when he's with his closest friends and family. I imagine Maradona is the same way. The soccer field, just like a stand-up comedian, it's his stage. That's where he expresses himself. That's where he performs. That's where he entertains. And that's who—that's when he gets to be Maradona himself. Well, not himself, rather, but a, but a character. And then when he goes home to his family and his close friends, he is just Diego. I get the impression that's how he operates. But oftentimes, the distinction between Diego and Maradona gets cloudy. Because there, <laughs> there are other shows like... His uh, him coaching the Mexican team on Netflix that was really good. In that uh, TV show, you could tell that when he's kind of you know just being himself or being extra, if you will. The humanity to the guy is that he was not perfect. That he he did some messed up things or he said some messed up things. He was known to like sleep around a lot. Like he was such a he was such a character, but like as a player, he was so fantastic. I think if there's any way you could summarize Maradona, is is that final against uh, England at the Azteca Stadium. The famous goal he scores where he takes the ball half foot on the halfway line, dribbles out half the England team, and then scores a crazy goal. Like, that's just it's stupid. What? Who does that? But yeah, that game, for those who aren't, aren't aware, go YouTube it, go find it. It's, it's impressive because he scored a goal with his hand and got away with it. There was no VAR, which is instant replay in other sports, but there's no VAR. Other English players, I look at the refs like that was a handball, and he, there, you know, ref didn't see it. And what what happened was someone uh, went in for a cross. Maradona was trying to uh, head it into net, but he wasn't gonna reach the ball. So apparently, he puts his hand over his head and sort of knocks the ball into the net, disguising it as a header based on what the you know based on how I see it, and scores a goal and got away with it. And then the second goal he scores in that game is the one that everyone talks about. It's like incredible run where he dribbles out five, six players and scores a goal. And then guarantees and wins Argentina, the FIFA World Cup, at the Azteca Stadium in front of 114,000 people in the Azteca Stadium. The Azteca Stadium in the soccer world is held to a... um, a degree of reverence because it's again a huge stadium it's big it's also mexico city in the heart of mexico city the name is azteca badass name aztec stadium great name and second mexico is a great soccer city so i imagine like a uh, soccer soccer city soccer countries mexico city is a great soccer city but just imagine that like you're playing at 114,000 people you know the entire city of Me- the entire country of mexico is watching you you're playing the final against england the, you know, the inventors of the game, the game that brought soccer to the Argentinians. Anyway, uh, all that context put aside, that game itself, I think, single-handedly represents Diego Maradona. The good, the bad, the ugly. I guess the bad and ugly being that hand of God goal. So I want to talk about Maradona because he did pass away recently, and that's a big loss to the soccer world, to soccer culture. He's still relatively young in his 60s, but the lifestyle he was living was not sustainable. I mean, if you've seen how he acted in the 2014 World Cup and in the 2018 World Cup, or I, I forget which one, but you could tell that he was on something. Like, he was just on another level of something. That's not. I'm not saying to, to, to disrespect him. I'm just saying, like, yeah. Again, watch the documentary. <laughs> we'll never see another Maradona ever again because this, this that man was... The cultural space he occupied 
in soccer and outside of soccer is quite unique and Ronaldo or Messi doesn't do the same. Soccer makes us feel a certain way that is genuinely irrational. People wept when Maradona died and a man was killed for making a mistake comparing soccer fans with religious people. If we either see Maradona as a if you either compare Maradona as a saint and then the people's reaction towards those pe- towards those saints or revered soccer players, the reaction's quite similar. Devotion happens. You do everything in, almost to their bidding, but also you will protect those people. Because th- those people gave you hope and made you feel a certain way. That's why I feel like Naples could legitimately make Diego Maradona their patron saint, unofficially. And so when I think about that, how is Maradona's effect on a person any different to a real saint? St. Francis, St. Andrew, St. Patrick, whoever. How does St. Maradona differ from them besides the overt religious language and lore? And I guess I'll leave it at that. Next episode, I do want to talk specifically just about the fans. That being said, um, thank you for listening to this episode or making it this far with me. Well, I'll be honest, I didn't know how this episode would shape out, but I'm quite happy as to how this conversation went. So to all those listening, thank you for listening. This is Soccer Pilgrim. My name is Jason Kim. Thank you.